From Innovation Alley at Marquette University, I'm Chuck Swoboda, and this is Innovators on Tap, a show based on the idea that innovation is about leadership. It's a mindset to find a better way, and ultimately, it's about people. These conversations are designed to allow you to open your mind to new ideas and find ways to put those concepts to work. Together, we can solve big problems and maybe even change the world. I was taking a walk recently in my neighborhood, enjoying a sunny afternoon and streaming music through my iPhone when the Bruce Springsteen song, Born in the USA, came on. It brought back my high school days and listening to the song many times on my Sony Walkman. Now I know this dates me, but I started listening to music on vinyl records. I briefly experienced eight tracks and then converted to cassette tapes where I experienced truly portable music for the first time. As the technology evolved, I eventually moved on to compact discs before shifting to digital music on iTunes. As technology has changed, so has the business model, which has shifted from ownership to access. Most of us no longer buy albums in any form. Instead, we either rent our music through a monthly streaming service like Spotify or Apple Music, or listen through an ad-supported service like Pandora. But did you ever wonder where all this technology innovation came from? Have you thought about how much it is changing the music business model? And are those changes actually good or bad for the artists making the music? In this episode, I speak with Larry Miller, who is part of the team behind the compression technology that helped make digital music possible. And as ubiquitous as this technology has become, when Larry first pitched the idea to music executives, he was laughed out of the room. They thought nobody would want to listen to what they considered to be low-quality music. Now, it's the standard. But Larry's career in music covers so much more. He worked for one of the most successful radio startups in history. He started a music label that won multiple Grammys. And today, he's the director of music business programs at New York University. Larry offers some great insight as to what he's learned over a very successful career, including this piece of advice. You can really learn from the smartest and the dumbest people you've ever met. You just need to be clever enough to understand which is which. This podcast was recorded at Gotham Podcast Studios in New York City. That's what's on tap today. Enjoy. Well, Larry, welcome and thank you for joining me today on Innovators on Tap. Glad to be here, Chuck. So, Larry, you spent many years in the radio business, and I know you were trained or are trained as a voiceover actor. <laughs> That's true. So I'm curious, do I have a voice for podcasts or not? Yes, and a face for podcasts. <laughs> thank you very much. That's awesome. Um, so, look, I learned over the years that uh, – a lot of who we become as adults starts out with how we grow up. Are there some things about how you grow up that you think shape some of your beliefs that have made you successful? So when I was um, when I was very young, I sounded uh, you know vocally kind of sort of the way I sound today. And so as a you know 12, 13, 14 year old kid, I could either be a total social outcast or, I could play Led Zeppelin records on the radio and be like the coolest kid in school. And so, you know, that was the path that I took, but it wasn't that somebody hadn't opened the door for me. And uh and really it was uh it was my mother who opened the very first door. She was 
working at a uh, at a tiny daytime only you know radio station in the Boston suburbs, and um, it was the kind of place for people who were young and very much on their way up, and for others whose you know best days were really behind them. And I learned some very valuable lessons there observing that place. And one of them was that you can learn from both. And uh, and in fact, some years later, after I had cycled through all the rock radio stations in Boston and uh, was on my way to coming to New York, I worked for a, uh, a startup software and consultancy you know, business where my job was uh, driving and flying around America, uh, spending time at uh, radio stations in large and medium markets. And, you know, then it, it, it sort of cemented in the lessons that I had learned some years earlier at that little suburban radio station outside of Boston in that, you know, you really can learn from the smartest and dumbest people that you've ever met. You just need to be clever enough to understand which is which. Let's go ahead. So you, you're in radio. You have a lot of success. I think it's at the station in New York where you have your kind of – you guys really set a new standard here. And then yeah. you decide to go back and get your MBA. Yes. Why did you decide to walk away from radio and go back to school? I had an opportunity a year after we did the pop radio startup in New York to join NBC's rock radio network, which was the dominant youth network of that era. It was a remarkable time. And now when uh, I'm with students and I'm talking about uh, the primacy, the criticality of going out and hiring yourself a mentor, I talk about what it was like to have that kind of Camelot moment early in my career, that moment when, you know, you had a great mentor, you were in a place, if you're lucky, where you've got the best and the brightest around you and just the ability to do amazing things and, and, uh, and to expand into uncharted territory, which we did. So I had a mentor then. Uh, really my my first and most important mentor, who one day kind of tapped me on the shoulder and said uh, that I should think about going to business school, which in the in the place that I grew up, in the time that I grew up, in the in the family that I grew up in, uh, you know, wasn't something that was obvious to me. And um, he encouraged me to go where he went. and and I did. And for me, Business school was uh, one of the couple of most transformative experiences uh, I have uh, I have still ever had. And uh, look, I, I understand that business school curricula have changed over time, and thank goodness for that. And uh, and that there are different economic winds that are buffeting the the top business schools in the United States and elsewhere now than was the case you know a decade ago or or decades ago, but for me, as a young person who had been working in mostly music radio for the early part of my career and thought that that was where the rest of my career was going to be, as it turns out, was um, an utterly frame-shifting transformative experience. 
uh, and I never looked at the world in the same way after that. So I know you get into consulting, and then you end up working, I think it's at at and Labs. Yeah. And I was really interested to read that you were involved not only in commercializing compression technology that we're still using today as a tech guy. I found that very interesting. But uh, more importantly, you started a business within at and I think it was called A2B. Yes. What, A2B what, music. Letter A, number two, letter B music. So what was – the idea that you were trying to start with inside AT&T? So inside of the labs, there were sort of two big chunks, the uh, the applied part and the research part. And so the part of AT&T labs that I went to work in was AT&T labs research. And my job was finding soft, underexploited technology and turning it into something. And basically, I got lucky. And in my first week in that company, I, uh, I met the guy who would become my partner in, uh, in not only uh, starting A to B Music, but in, uh, in running uh, Reciprocal, the company that we ultimately sold it to, which ultimately itself was sold to Microsoft some years later. So you start this business with an AT&T and you get it going. And I read that at some point you guys decide we need to do this outside of a large company. Yeah. And I think that's something that so many people that listen to the podcast who are trying to figure out innovation or being entrepreneurs, can you do it inside a large organization or not? What was the challenge of trying to do it inside a large company? What was the benefit of getting it outside? That is a fabulous question. And it is one that I've thought about doing a book about. I probably won't do that book, and I think that others have at least taken a, a shot at describing the challenges and uh, pathways and frameworks of intrapreneurship as opposed to entrepreneurship. But for us at that time in the, in the late 90s, uh, so this was during Internet One, there was a bubble going on. Uh, everyone we knew who was building technology for the production and distribution and consumption of music over this new internet thingy. And remember that we were, we were sending music and other media files then over, you know, twisted copper lines. And so uh, for those of you who, uh, who may be too young to remember that time, imagine that instead of trying to get music over the broadband wireless networks that we have today, that you were trying to sip a McDonald's shake through a cocktail straw. It was kind of like that. Right. Yeah, there was no concept of streaming, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not certainly not real time. You know, streaming and you know to download a song would take you know minutes. You know, it was, uh, and it was a problem that that we were in fact solving at that time. Everyone that we knew who was uh, out there in the world doing an external startup, if you will, with. Um, with venture capital money or or seed investment or strategic capital from somebody was uh, was getting a fair amount of traction and they were able to be much more agile than we were as a science project inside of AT&T Labs. And so 
we uh, we decided to take the project elsewhere. There's almost a dynamic that I think when I talk to people that have built businesses that they're able to – when you try to do it inside a large organization, you have lots of resources, lots of bureaucracy and boundary conditions. But there's almost missing this um, – it's hard to fail there because it's not like AT&T Labs was going out of business if you guys weren't successful. True. And that something happens when you take it out and the team now knows it's up to them to figure it out or not that mm. changes that dynamic. Did you observe the same thing? Uh, we we did, but there were but there were other conditions going on, you know, at the at the time as well that are that are worth mentioning. Uh it certainly wasn't just an AT&T thing, but I think that in in any large enterprise or certainly any large enterprise of that of that time, there was a very proscribed way of gaining uh, investment capital for a project and uh, you know the freedom to move and go prosecute that opportunity. At that time, and that companies in general, the largest companies, um, well, didn't get large by accident. And once they are really, really large, um, disrupting themselves is really the last thing on their agenda. And and as you know, as a, if you can imagine what it might be like running a very, very large, widely held public stock. Earnings volatility isn't the thing that they live to, you know, create. Uh, smooth revenue growth and, uh, you know, earnings production and um, dividend distribution is sort of, you know, what what they wanted to be able to do quarter after quarter, and so disrupting themselves wasn't exactly at the top of their agenda, notwithstanding the fact that they had the greatest communications technology lab in the world that they uh, that they had started many, many decades previous. So it was a very difficult context in which to build something commercial that we felt in our cells – uh, was an opportunity that needed to be acted on right exactly then. Yeah, I would say that uh, from what I've seen that any large organization, it doesn't have to be the scale of AT&T, any organization that gets to a certain point of maturity where it's good at making money um, starts to reward the behaviors that lead to that, what I call management behaviors. And mm. so much of innovation is really a leadership problem. You know, it's instead of trying to ensure control and manage risk, it's about taking risk and being willing to accept what happens. And, and I lived through it. So when I got to create, it was a $6 million company, 30 mm. employees. Mm. By the time we were 1.6 billion and 7,000 employees, being a public company CEO certainly starts to make you less interested in taking risk because the fact is, is every 90 days I was judged by those shareholders and they really hate you missing earnings. And, and what we observed is we built the company by disrupting other large companies like GE in the lighting business. Mm. And then we eventually became like them because the reward system is set up for that predictability. And the reality is, is that in most large organizations, the way management works is you're rewarded for hitting your plan. And if you miss your plan, you get fired. And it's not much more complicated than that. And so there aren't a lot of people that go, hey, I like to disrupt my own job. Mm -hmm. So you're in the radio business. You get an MBA. 
then you're inside AT&T, you do a startup, you're pursuing new digital technology, and then you be, start an independent record label. Yeah. These, Isn't that obvious? N- not exactly. And so I'm just <laughs> curious, I just for the – I mean – other than obviously a curiosity in starting businesses, what is it that led to that choice? Uh, there were a few things. So I had been in and around music as a – really as a music radio person since, uh, you know, since I was a young teenager. And other than the fact that I sound vocally, the, you know, the way that I do, um, I did that. Because uh, growing up in Boston, not New York, Los Angeles, or Nashville, or, or or London, that the closest I could get to the music outside of going to a lot of shows was by working in radio for me at that time. I was really in it, especially in my earliest and youngest years, for the music. Uh, A to B music was about enabling the music industry to move toward a new model by adopting a new form of technology that was already happening to them, whether they wanted to embrace or acknowledge that or not. Uh, after the sale of Reciprocal, uh, it was it was right after 9-11. And, and uh, I've been in New York almost my entire adult career. Those months right after 9-11 was, a, uh, was a, a dark time in New York and I was looking for really a music deal to invest in or help run. And ultimately what I decided to do was to kind of put my money where my mouth was and really see if I was any good at all at signing artists and writers and, you know, taking something that I was passionate about and turning it into something that was popular and hopefully profitable. And, um, you know, we started that company and got lucky and were able to sell it, I think, within four years after we started it. And so you go through, you you prove it's a success. I know you won multiple Grammys while you were there. Yeah. What's the decision to say, okay, I've done this long enough. We're willing to sell it and move on. How, uh, what's the end of these cycles? Because it's interesting. You keep starting them having success, but you obviously get to an end point. You say, I'm ready to do something different. Yeah, I have the attention span of a gnat, honestly. And and um, I was thinking this morning about how long I've been teaching at NYU, which has not been decades. I think I'm in my eighth year now. Uh, which is just about the longest I've been anywhere in my career, and uh, perhaps it's a uh, it's a personality or character flaw. <laughs> I'm I'm not sure, but the uh, the decision around the sale of Or Music happened for a number of reasons. We had a distribution relationship with Sony Music. Uh, Sony made an offer to buy the company and, you know, we said, okay, I suppose we could have said no. And if we were in the business environment that we are now in, as we sit here today, regarding, uh, major and independent label music, uh, uh, as, uh, as we may have been then, uh, we may have taken a different decision, but we sold the record company to Sony. We also owned a music publishing business, which is the rights in the songs themselves, the 
underlying musical compositions, and we sold that to EMI several months later. So I want to, I want to go down that path. So you've been quoted as saying, no industry has been more disrupted by technology than the music industry. Can you describe what that disruption feels like today in the music industry? Well, I think that the uh, that the real disruption happened in 1999, 2000, 2001 uh, through the launch of iTunes, which uh, wasn't until 2003, all the way up through the uh, the you know formation of I don't want to just say it's not just Spotify, but on-demand streaming, because a lot of things had to fall into place in order for that business to be even remotely sustainable. And although I suppose that we could have a conversation about whether Spotify per se is a sustainable business or not, maybe that's a a conversation for another day. Um, The fact is, in order to get hundreds of millions or billions of people to stream music on demand, either on a subscription basis or an ad-supported basis, required a few things. One of those was ubiquitous wireless broadband. Another was smartphones. A third was a delightful consumer experience, which uh, would have been more attractive than just stealing the music or you know downloading it over an unreliable peer-to-peer network, which had certainly been the case from Napster forward uh, until iTunes started and certainly until the launch of Spotify in 2008. And remember that they didn't even come to the United States and Canada until 2011. And now we're, you know, you know, looking back over these last four or five years of uh, of double digit growth in the music industry has led to not just kind of a new way of, of consuming music, but really a new business model for the music industry, which is based on access and not ownership. And in fact, for the first six months of this year, streamed music, streamed on-demand music comprises 80% of the revenue in the recorded music business. It's a big change in just a handful of years. So although I say that the big disruption happened at the turn of the century, you know, we lived through, you know, 15 years of, you know, pain and suffering and, you know, crawling through the desert until the conditions were right for a mass market of consumers to want to get music in this way. And now we're li- we're living through that period now. Yeah, I, uh, I interviewed someone who had been uh, spent their career in retail, uh, Nordstrom's Best Buy, and then and ran a large auto parts company. And he, one of his observations was is that when you see real change is when someone figures out how to create frictionless consumer experiences. Mm-hmm. And as you're just describing it, you know, I realized in the last five years how much my habits have changed. And so, you know, I'm from the generation of I had albums, even had a few eight tracks. Um, that's a really bad technology, but and then CDs, and then I was a member of iTunes and was buying. Wait, what about cassettes? You must have I had, had some yeah, cassettes, had cassettes and where I recorded most of my albums onto cassettes so I could play them in my car. Portability, very important, right? And I had my Walkman with my cassette in it, mm-hmm. um, and then we ended up, you know, eventually downloading songs from iTunes. And today, 
I must still own those songs somewhere, but I don't know. I, I've never tried to listen to them. I listen on, frankly, I listen on Spotify. So you've taken a lot of risks along the way. You know, you've switched career paths a couple different times. What do you think it is that makes you comfortable taking risk? Well, it's a few things. One is confidence in my ability to execute once I have done the analysis. And though on the one hand, I am very passionate and driven about the things that I believe deeply in. On the other hand, that those things are informed by data and risk management and analysis and what we used to call doing one's homework. And so, you know, that's one thing. But I've also been lucky. And look, there are, you know, very real economic constraints that many people face uh, who might otherwise want to pivot toward their passion. And, uh, and I've been super lucky to be able to, you know, take those chances during what turned out to be opportune times in the evolution of, you know, my own career and the music industry. So I was reading an article that came out in the last few days um, by the founder of Spanx, and she was talking about the best advice she ever got. And it was, as she was growing up, once a week, her dad would ask her what she failed at that week. Uh, and that's all they wanted to talk about. And it really struck me that so much, there, there is so much buried in that concept that when I meet people that have had success, they weren't afraid of failure. It, they, they didn't want to fail, but they weren't afraid of it and they learned something from it. Yeah. Is there something, you know, now that you've spent eight years at NYU, how do we get at that concept she's describing when our education system is kind of designed to do the opposite, it feels like to me? Huh. Uh, so I don't have a very great answer for, for that question, but I can tell you an observation that I have in uh, still the relatively brief time now, still just under 10 years of, you know, standing in front of students most every day of the week. And that is, um, I wish that we could be better at training young people resilience. Because, you know, we can train people up how to memorize facts and we can train people up how to communicate better and how to solve for X. But we're just not very good at training people to become resilient. And I wish I knew how to do that better than we currently do. Yeah, I was having this discussion with someone that runs a, an incubator for small companies. And when we were talking about what they did, it was provide all the resources to make them successful. And my comment was, is, you know, maybe that's the opposite of what we should do. We should actually put them in a situation that forces their hand earlier and harder mm. and teaches them how to survive. Mm. Fail uh, faster. Fail, and, and, and it's, or just push them hard enough just to see what happens because I think the more you give people a safe place to do this, mm. the less we teach your concept of resiliency. And resiliency to me is something you're learned, right? You get comfortable with it. Um, and I think the more we try to prevent that failure, we, we kind of do the opposite of that. Yeah, I agree. 
the the incentives aren't aligned with the desired behavior ultimately. Yeah. So what do you know now that you wish you knew at the beginning of your career? Oh, God. <laughs> Wait, how much time have we got? <laughs> True transformation takes time. Transformation uh, of a business, uh, of an industry, and in most cases, for a person, notwithstanding a you know road to Damascus type of personal transformation, um, but real lasting transformation takes time and practice uh, in order for individuals, departments, companies, and industries to learn a new way of being and acting. And even when we are able to see the right answer years before, it always takes longer than you think. Always, always, always. Yeah, I know that uh, it was 2006 when I first presented that we were sure the LED was going to eventually transform the lighting industry. And it was 2013 when our Cree LED bulb was finally released. Uh -huh. And we could prove to people that it was going to happen. And one of the things I always find when I talk to people that are frustrated with their idea that no one can see them is it's, you know. Especially when it's so obvious right. to you. Well, and, and, and we actually – we actually did the math to show that we would eventually have – that not only was it more efficient at the time, but over the next decade, it would get so efficient. It would be more efficient than any light source and last longer and be cheaper than anything else. It was, it was mathematically – we could prove it. But no one would move. And the aha that came to me and that the advice I always try to give people is seeing the future is really just the first step. Yes. Someone actually has to go make it happen. That's true. And, and I we're always surprised that – you know, like you, if you want to do this, you have to go make it happen. And so, yeah, I was frustrated that day by, I was told by all the major light bulb companies in 2006 that, oh, you guys are nice guys. And that technology is pretty cool. We'll never need it. Yeah, It'll be a niche technology because what we have is good enough. No one will ever want to change. Mm -hmm. And we got so frustrated. I said, what do we do? It's like, and we jokingly said, we need to start a revolution. But if you think about what a revolution is, it really is about, you have to Hey, what is it? How do you make this relevant to people and make them care? And it was a long journey, but it does work eventually. But I'm always surprised that people, they just wish it would happen overnight. And, and, and the great innovators are actually the ones often, you know, Steve Jobs didn't come up with a lot of these ideas first. He, but he actually did them. Yes. So in the world, we get paid for execution, not for having a good idea is you know, one sort of you know comment I have on 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 this this thread that you're on right now. The other though reminds me of a story, and I remember sitting in the uh, in the corporate boardroom of one of the then major music companies in the late 1990s in London, and uh, I remember going over there with my partner, who I should. Shout out to Howie Singer. Hi, Howie, wherever you are. Uh, he was my uh, partner from AT&T Labs and doing A to B music. And at the time, we were flying around the planet showing the people who ran the major music companies a prototype of a solid-state um, music storage and listening device that sort of looked like it was about the size, really, of a of an of an iPhone, um, and 
at the time, of course, you know, CDs were, you know, dominating the way that uh, that companies uh, sent music to people and that and that people bought it. And we were sitting in this conference room in London, in front of this, you know, room full of executives. And you can imagine this is the height of the CD era. I mean, the audio playback capabilities in that room were just astonishing, in- incredible audio. And so we plugged our thing in, and we, and we, uh, you know, shook it for so that the people in the room could see that look, this doesn't skip like, like when you take your CD, your portable CD player, and you shake it. You know, of course, it's gonna, it's gonna skip. But look at this way of listening to music, you know, it doesn't skip. And of course, it was using our particular way of making music files smaller, compressing it. Uh, And so that form of music uh, played through that system was what we were listening to that day. And I remember the executive sitting at the end of the table, you know, looking at Howie and me, and looking around at his room full of executives and uh, and laughed and said, nobody will ever pay for music that effing sounds like that. And uh, Howie and I looked at each other and, you know, we were pretty polite. And I'm pretty sure that we knew what the right answer was and the way that the world would evolve. But it was another you know, 20 years before music that sounded like that was the dominant way that people, you know, bought, subscribed to, consumed, and discovered music in the world. I want to finish with one last kind of fun question. You get to go to one last concert, any artist you want. Who is it? Oh, God. <laughs> Living or dead? It could be – no, either one. And so if it's someone who's died you can't go to anymore, that's fine. I just – who would be the number one on your bucket list to hear? I'm gonna I'm gonna date myself by saying this, but at at the risk of doing so, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you the story anyway. Um, when I was uh, not quite eighteen, in the week before I went to college, uh, I went to see uh, Bruce Springsteen on uh, with my then girlfriend on what would become the first night of the Born to Run tour. So they had finished making Born to Run that morning, got in a van and trailer and drove up to New England, and I happened to see that show. It was one of the musical experiences in my, in my life that sort of cemented my decision to be around this stuff as a career move. Um, it changed the way I looked at the world in the way that going to business school, well, maybe in a different way than, than going to business school did, but it, it, it shifted the lens through which I view the possibility for music and connecting with people. Now, since then, I have seen Bruce many times. Um, I always get a little bit emotional at some point during those shows. Uh, 
I, you know, went to the Broadway show and and uh, and even read read his book, and I got the same feeling, you know, each time. And although I suppose I could say, "Geez, if only I could only, uh, you know, I could see that artist, or you know, that was the one that that got away," I would rather see another Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band show than almost any other show that I could go to today. And I go out and see things almost every night of the week. And I'll tell you one other thing. The older I get, the broader my musical palette has become. And so, you know, over this last 10 or 15 years or so, I may I live here in New York City. I may be at the Metropolitan Opera uh, on any night of the week, just as frequently as I will be at a, you know, downtown club, you know, checking out, you know, the latest, you know, indie rock band who somebody said I should go see from, you know, from England or any place else in the world. And um, I love that about what I get to do every day. And uh, it almost doesn't matter to me where the music comes from or what genre it is, as long as it rings as authentic. That is that is awesome. Um, I think I'd like to see Bruce again, but I'd like to see Bruce back when you describe it. So I, yeah. I just don't feel it doesn't feel quite the same anymore. But uh, it's been a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much. Your story is unbelievable, and uh, I'm uh, I really appreciate the chance uh, to get to talk to you today. We're still writing that story, but thanks for your interest in talking to me. I'm glad to have been invited, and uh, I'll be listening. Great, thanks. Thanks to Larry Miller for joining me on Innovators on Tap and sharing much about his prolific career. Larry said something that I think is really important. In the real world, we get paid for execution and not for good ideas. When people think of innovation, they often think that all it takes is a new idea or invention. But as I learned many times, that is often the easy part. What really matters is your ability to execute an idea, to solve a customer problem, and create real value. My conversation with Larry also reminded me of how impactful music can be in our lives. So, if you can go hear one last concert from a favorite musician, whether they are dead or alive, who would it be? Please comment on my Twitter feed for this episode, at TheChuckSwoboda, and let me know what you think. I think I would join Larry and go see Bruce Springsteen again. Or maybe I would take the opportunity to see the Beatles for the first time. If you found value in this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. Please feel free to contact us through our website at innovatorsontap.com. We are always open to new ideas or critical feedback. My belief as an innovator is anything you do today can be done better tomorrow. Thanks for joining us on this journey, and let's go change the world.